Hi, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Two Half Squads. I'm Jeff. And I'm Dave, and this is the only podcast dedicated to the greatest game in the world, Advanced Squad Leader. Or other than Squad Leader, also the greatest game in the world. Yeah, there's two greatest games in the world. It's Squad Leader and Advanced Squad Leader. Yeah. Not that we're being biased. No, we're not. But we're trying to pay homage tonight, especially because we are speaking to somebody very special tonight. Very special. And it's January the 18th, and this show will be posted somewhere in February, probably. But yeah, we've just been busy for a few weeks and doing a lot of shows. And don't get your hopes up. They won't keep yeah. coming, coming at this pace. Well, they might. They might. We might even do one that's entertaining somewhere in there. Though we posted, uh, so we posted the Chaz episode, episode 30, all that Chaz. And uh, I see already we've got we've got this uh, on our website. We've got this little thing where you can list your reaction. Your if you decide that the episode is funny or interesting or informative or dull. And uh, I'm seeing too many dulls, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know we were dull. I put it on there. I didn't well, think anybody would actually check it. The solution. <laughs> <laughs> the solution to this is Jeff. Remove dull. Remove dull. Yeah. It'll so take we'll care of that. Funny, interesting, informative, yeah, and if fabulous, if precious. If you precious. My precious. Yeah. If you don't check interesting, we'll know it's dull. Yeah, that's right. It <laughs> doesn't have to be so insulting. Yeah. However, how exciting can the fans expect, you know, some of these interviews to be with these people? Because we're not just a bunch of clowns here, Jeff. No. We're not just a couple of bozos here. No. Sitting in the Sangar foxhole hey. cellar. No. That's no, true. we're serious, serious ASL historians, yeah. and we're creating with these interviews, you know, a serious record of the history of wargaming. And I don't think it may be appropriate to be joking around like a couple of yahoos when you're interviewing Chaz Argent. Yeah, and, that's true. I mean, you know, think we, of it. We do take our our job seriously. We do. We provide news. And commentary. And and serious news. Vital news. Vital serious news. People are going to look back. People are going to dig up these episodes years from now. And say, look, they were announcing this like a month after it was announced on Comison World. (laughs) God bless them. Boy, are they slow producers. You think we'll get a a statue of us in bronze somewhere? I think that, you know, history will tell. History will tell. When a fan squad leader... Becomes this number one game outside Monopoly, right? It's inevitable. Yeah, that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, so anyway, fans, sorry. Sometimes you have to expect a little dull. It's a, yeah, it can't <laughs> all be hard to be on all the time. Well, no, yeah. an interview. It's not appropriate to be interrupting Chaz making jokes all the time. Right. I had like twenty excellent jokes, but I just kept them all to myself. Well, and uh, you never really know, you know, because we've never met these people, and they don't know us and our humor may not be something they understand so we yeah. need to be careful yeah because most of them are not as intellectually um sophisticated Bent. as we are <laughs> <Bent>. <laughs> my wife always gets a little nervous because i'll you know we'll go into a restaurant and i'll say i've got the same you know 10 or 15 lines <laughs> for a waitress you know she'll say uh, you know how many in your party i'll say two can you seat us with a view of the mountains <laughs> I always say that we live in Chicago. There are no mountains, but I always say that. Let My wife guess. always cringes. And then you repeat your order and you say, do you know I have a short-term memory problem? Yeah. <laughs> Did I tell you yeah. that? 
No, I'll always say, shall I say, can I start you off with a drink? And I'll say, I always say, do you have any alcoholic beverages? And she'll say, yes. And I always say, well, I'll have that. I always do that. I've I've been with you. I've seen you do some of these. I can't remember them now. My poor wife. And your poor and, and my podcasting poor Dave, yeah, partner. I <laughs> go with you to to the. Remember, we went to the sandwich shop. I remember you did something. Yeah. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> oh, ask me what I did today. What did you do today, Dave? Do you know I have a short term memory? <laughs> <laughs> we went to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Who we? My family. <laughs> oh, your family. <laughs> my, my mouse in my pocket. Um, well, you didn't go to school. It's uh, correct. It's Martin Luther Martin King, Luther King Day. Day. Right. That's right. Um, in honor of that great man, and we had the day. So my wife got us to go downtown to the museum, and I'm bringing this up. Does fit? Because fans of Squad Leader and Advanced Squad Leader, when you come to Chicago, the museum it has parts. I find a little doll. You know, the human body, here's your heart beating, things like that. Is there a check mark there where you can check? Dull. <laughs> How did you like this exhibit? Dull. <laughs> oh, no, I would never be so rude as to yeah. actually check dull. <laughs> and my son Adam, he's, he's, um, doesn't like, uh, open body parts like operation shows where their doctors are operating you know and yeah uh, any of that understandable stuff. yeah <laughs> and so he's like not looking at some of these you know diagrams and things at the at the museum but excuse me they do have a the u-boat 50 oh shoot 505 505 i think the so. german u-boat untersee boat captured by the americans in world war ii yeah it's right there. If you're coming from out of town, and you know, tell the wife, "Hey, let's go to the Museum of Science and Industry." That sounds intellectual, and you can get your squad leader fix there. Yeah, it's because there's a lot of uh, U-boats in squad leader. I, <laughs> you know, I was just clipping all my U-boat counters when you came over, Dave, and I'm not done yet. I wore out my C4 corner cutter on my U-boat collection. All right. Well, I stand corrected, yeah. but. Well. Your, it does still fit. You're right. Your World War II buff attitude. Yeah. yeah. And the display is really nicely done. And they yes. have the ex- exploded, opened view of the Enigma machine, which was the code breaker. Oh, right, the code know, machine. And it changed the alphabet up, and you can match it. And then and some little activities for the kids in there, the, the lighting inside there. Now I'm doing like a movie review. The lighting inside, really neat. In fact, my wife commented. I just noticed it, and my wife commented on it also. It's kind of like underwatery, green and blue, mm. you know, wiggly around lighting, and they did a super nice job. And and just so people know, this is an this is the actual full captured U boat. Yes. Now, for a while, for many years, they had it. They actually had it outside of the museum, and there was just a uh, hallway leading up to it. But yeah. I, it's it inside the museum now, covered because it was that what, the elements were what they did deteriorating. And you can see a, a stop motion condensed time frame film, uh-huh. time lapse film of it when they built a big pit behind the museum. They moved this thing down. They moved it over on a crane on ramps. And then down into the pit, and they built the room around it. Oh, I see. Yeah, with the ramps wow. and all the detail. So, what was really fascinating as a construction standpoint, they had like eight pillars that held the thing up, and it was being lowered bit by bit. 
and then I noticed they what they had was like stacked pieces of wood like a Jenga game mm-hmm. in each column. Mm-hmm. And I swear, Jeff, they pulled the pieces out one at a time to slowly to lower it yeah, slowly. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I think it was a game yeah. to see if they wouldn't <laughs> knock over the submarine. Yeah, you don't want to but knock it over and break it. They really did. How, how do you pull these? blocks out and then they were stacking them on the side and it was lonely i'm like how primitive is that yeah it's just giant jenga <laughs> hard to beat those old uh methods that work though yeah I, you know fascinating yeah and again a great display plus a lot of miniatures if you're a miniatures war gamer that's right they I'd have forgotten the fairy about castle yeah, right oh your daughters will love the fairy castle um they have a circus miniature with the spinning elephants and the big top. I'm trying to think of that scenario. Was it assault on the fairy castle? <laughs> yeah. Or any circus ones. There yeah. was a zoo one. Was there? In the Heat of Battle product. The, oh, the really? The zoo in Berlin. Um, and oh, in an ASL annual, I think. Did not know that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And there was something else miniature. But anyway, it, it's, it's not all just boring science. Yeah. It's some history there, too. Yeah, it's great stuff. That's a great museum. And I don't go there very often because it's way on the south. You know, it's 35th Street South, which is... Yes. Yeah. It takes long to... enough for me to get downtown. It takes me an hour to get downtown, yeah. then another 35 minutes to get down there. Yeah, you have to... Cru- now, to go in the 505 is a little bit of extra pay. And, in fact, I said to my wife today, because we, we never... The Kleinschmidt family never splurges on those things. Look, try and peek between the cracks of the <laughs> submarine kids. See if you can see what's inside there. But even if you don't go in, it's a fascinating display. And um, I thought, well, Laura, I said actually said, maybe Jeff and I will come back... In the summer or something, and pay money to go inside or take a little day to go do you know some fun stuff there. So, so you didn't actually go in it, not into the actual submarine. Ah, and still fascinating yeah. displays of AK guns and a giant torpedo opened up. You can see the internal workings of it on the side. Fascinating. And do you remember where did they where did they capture this submarine? In in the ocean. Okay. Yeah. It didn't come into the Great Lakes because no. I know there were submarines. Well. <laughs> I don't think any submarines made it into the Great Lakes. <laughs> not from Germany. I mean, not, but they came up the St. Lawrence Seaway a bit, didn't they? I don't know about that. I think they did, but they certainly I'll, were off you the know coast. What? I'll ship. do a history report. So, okay, and, for and, next show. Oh, the five because I would like to know about it. it. And it yeah. was. Uh, they have also have some very good films showing you a bit of the capturing and stuff of it. Yeah. So. Well, what? Uh, and how about uh, listener mail? Do we have any listener we mail? We just have two since we're. Since we recorded three days ago, yeah, <laughs> and they just keep coming in. There's like one a day, and this one. Wait a minute, I've got to have the music. Oh yeah, I love this music. Fantastic. All right, thank you. One is from Todd R. R. Says, is he a pirate? R. Yes, he is. He sent a link to his. ASL Extra tutorial kind of first attempt. Oh, this is something he created? Yes. And imagine just the other show. Mm-hmm. Someone wrote in saying, we need more tutorials posted and yeah. things. And here we have another listener picking up the slack and making his own and getting it on YouTube. We'll put the, the link there. It's a rough effort, but a great effort anyway for a new guy. Yeah, that's cool. In fact, this player, Todd, then added... And it needs a lot of work, his link, I mean, his um, production. 
buddy wrote, by the way, I was listening back to Tanks to You, and you read a letter signed T, saying that he had no plans on playing ASL. Well, I'm T, and I'm now playing starter kits. Hey. Never say never. <laughs> so welcome to the fold, Todd. Not only are you playing starter mm-hmm. kits, but you're posting stuff online for other players to look at. Nice job. Cheers. I'm trying to find something to ding. Cheers. Oh, here we go. But we can, yeah. Uh, it's not much. That's of a not working. Anyway. Yeah. Cheers. So nice. Congratulations, Todd. Yeah. Great going, Todd. And one more. I was just catching up with the podcast, reaching episode 28. I heard about the plight of Scott in the Nashville area. I'm also in the Nashville area, and I'm part of a group that includes a number of ASL players. We would love to try and find Scott and meet up with him. Have Scott email me. And I normally wouldn't mention this on the air, except that we are, once again, getting great players together around the world. Part of our job. Yeah. But he, I can't, I went and found Scott's email, but he posted on the site, Jeff, and there was, it's, you know, when I do the reply, it says no reply. So we don't have his email address, correct? We don't get your address when you post on the podcast a comment. We That's get the right. Comment mailed us in a Gmail account. So Scott, if you're out there from Nashville, used to live in Schaumburg, you got to get us your email address. Yes, and we'll uh, hook you up with somebody to play. Right. Or look, I recommended that uh, Bill Williams, who is sending this letter, Bill wants to get you into his group. That he post also on episode 25, where Scott put his original posting, ah. saying, "Hey, here I am. Come find me." So. Maybe look there, too. Yeah. And that's it. Wonderful. That's good stuff. Well, I guess we can uh, dispense with all the other nonsense we normally do, like, you know, all rules the- <laughs> and interesting news. No, we're going to – we're very proud to have uh, set up an interview with John Hill, the John Hill of Avalon Hill. The John Hill. Yeah, the hill in Avalon Hill. No. The king of the hill. Yeah. He's not really – no. But it is John Hill. Yes. And following Chaz and then this interview, I think we're done. Yeah, we've. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. Yeah. And just like Seinfeld and uh, Friends, we should probably just stop while we're on top. Yeah. So maybe next time we should just do a, a final show. Maybe so. Yeah. Kind yeah, of a farewell thing. It. Just kidding. Oh, wait. We haven't. You're not going to get rid of us that We haven't easily. interviewed Perry yet. Oh, yeah, Perry. Or Brian. Brian. Or, or Vic Provost. and Oh, wait, there's many more people to interview. Oh, thank goodness. All around the world. Yeah. And the French guy who sent us those excellent products. Oh, yeah. Well, vive la France. All right, so let's get on with our interview, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, when it's over. But first, this word from our sponsor. Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Jeff, what I'm are you in, doing? I'm in here. What are you doing in here? I'm clipping counters. Using what? My nail clippers, Dave. I'm clipping counters. Jeff, Jeff, we've got to get to the tournament. People are expecting I know, us. I know, I know. Our, our fan base is there, Dave, Jeff. Dave, I oh, cannot oh. go to the tournament with ragged corners on my counters. Leave but, me alone. i got to clip these. But all, but all two of our listeners are there waiting uh, to I've hear I've only got 400 Jeff. counters to go. Give me... Can you come back tomorrow? No, 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 no. Here, 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 here. No, it won't take here, eight here. hours. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. I'm, Remember, the C4 corner cutter. 
Oh, the C4 corner cutter. I totally forgot. How could you have forgotten? Here, here it is. Take the C4, Jeff. I can cut hundreds of counters. Hundreds of counters. Line them up right in there. All right. Hold that blade. All right. Ready, go. Wow. Load in another five. There you go. It's amazing. Ten more. Oh, my gosh. Another ten. Can anything be easier? This is fantastic. This is a miracle. How did I ever get by without a C4 corner cutter? You ready to go to the tournament? Dave, I'm ready to go. Let's go! Don't let ragged corners ruin your next squad leader tournament. Get a C4 corner cutter from Counterculture. When you order, mention the two half squads, and they'll toss a dollar into the shipper. Yep, a buck in the box just for mentioning the two half squads. And there's no time limit on this offer. Something else... The C4 has gone retail, so check with your local hobby or game store to see if they have it. Speed up the tedious task of clipping counters one at a time. Get the C4 corner cutter. Less time clipping means more time gaming. And a buck in the box, too. For more info, just click the link on our show site. Hello, John. Yes, how'd the sound check go? Oh, it sounded beautiful. You sound very handsome. Well, let's not jump to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the kind thought, but uh, I have to certainly uh, question the veracity of the information, given the fact that we're uh, are not on a television phone. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Though we'd like to see, we'd like to take a peek into your game room. I, I bet it's really nice. <laughs> well, uh, like most game designers, I don't play that much. Ah, yeah, that's a problem. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, some sort of unexpected, you know curse you know yeah james dunnigan was always proud of the fact that he never played a game is that right <laughs> <laughs> well we we uh we were looking at your page on wikipedia did you know you had a entry on wikipedia i'm sure someone put one in yeah and uh, among many other things it mentions that you were uh, i'll just read this hill was named to the Wargaming Hall of Fame, receiving the Charles S. Roberts Awards at the Origins Gaming Convention in Chester, Pennsylvania, on June 23, 1979. Hill developed what arguably is the most popular rule set ever developed for regimental-level American Civil War miniature gaming, the Johnny Reb series. Oh, he, well, that's true, that's true enough. Uh, people often say, what is the... Uh, they'll ask me what I think is the most... Uh, popular Civil War miniature rules, and I said, well, it's not Johnny Webb. And they'll look at me sort of weird, and I would say, it's a basically the most common regimental set of Civil War rules is a variant of Johnny Webb. Every, the, the system is very, very robust, as is squad leader, that you can just pile a lot of stuff on it, as advanced squad leader proved, and the system holds up quite well. Yeah. Yes, and it does. Johnny Webb, you'll... People have been tweaking with it and uh, adding stuff on it and taking chrome on, taking chrome off, and playing with it forever. And, uh, yeah, it, it still holds up well. Uh, as a matter of fact, the two systems, if you look into them, uh, Johnny Webb and Squad Leader are very similar. Uh, in some respects, Johnny Webb was the uh, further development of the Squad Leader chronology, except it's now done on a more simultaneous uh mechanism, which is more traditional with uh, bo uh, miniature games as opposed to the phase term sequence in board games. Mm -hmm. But if you break down a, the Johnny Red turn sequence, you'll say, hey, this is basically squad leader, but it's being done simultaneously. Oh, I see. 
and uh, you can certainly do it. You can go back from one to the other, and you could, uh, there is a, and that's because they're from the same roots, uh, and that is uh, a, a depiction of the chronology of combat, which hasn't changed since Cain and Abel, uh, in that, uh, you know, you go back to pretty much all battles are pretty much the same and just different scales, different weaponry, and that one side will have a piece of land. One side is going to be the defender. He's he's very happy with what he has. He's dug in, does whatever he wants to do to fortify his vision. And the other guy is determined to take it away, either by driving him off or killing him and then taking it away. So you have a phase where, a, a, you know, the uh, attacker, Oh, uh, do a prep fire, whether it's, uh, you know, a uh, whole 24-7 bombardment like the Somme, a hail of uh, arrows back in the Persian era, or, you know, just some heavy suppressive fire from MG-42s. It's basically a prep fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Civil War, the uh, one-hour barrage by the Confederates before Pickett's charge, it's a prep fire. Right. Right. And then, okay, they says, okay, that prep fire has uh, uh, softened them up a bit, uh, hopefully, uh, that we can now advance it. So then there is the advance, and then the defenders that are not uh, dead, dazed, or other were otherwise uh, out of it, they will put on a defensive fire, whether it's with arrows, with uh, rovings, with uh, javelins, or and with various weapons, or whatever you have. It's David with a sling or long-range standoff defensive weapons. Well, then that either stops the defender or it doesn't, or makes them go to ground and make them crawl forward slowly. And then finally, the attackers that do survive the uh, defensive fire will attempt to close with and destroy the enemy, whether it's a Roman with a gladius or a a German with a schmeiser. Basically, the chronology comes out the same. Mm Mm-hmm. And did you discover uh, this uh, on your own, or was oh, this... Oh, yeah, yeah, pretty much, but it's not like, duh. Right. It's sort of obvious. <laughs> you start reading uh, military history, and uh, it's almost the same thing. Every, every There's always a prep fire phase, whether you're throwing rocks at each other with slingers in the day, days of the Philistines, or heavy artillery in today's modern world. Mm-hmm. Well, what, The whole um, chronology is the same. Yeah, I'd like to ask you then what, what your gaming background was. I mean, we joked that you had don't have a lot of time to play games as you're designing. Uh, were there games that you liked best when you were a youngster? Well, when I I started, I started out with the I was at Dawn of Creation and started out with Tactics Two, and played that to death. And then we waited it and with bated breath for every new game that Avalon Hill would come out once a year. And that then there was uh, Blitzkrieg, which I liked, you know, because well, it was something different, better than Tactics Two. It had hexagons. Wow, well, how's that for novelty? Oh, right. And then we went to uh, Battle of the Bulge, which I thought was very good. And uh, and but I always wanted a much more tactical game. And, and I, because that's I, I was re fascinated with small unit actions, and both small and large unit actions still saw the similarity of the chronology. And also, I just was really excited when SPI came out and said came out with some of their tactical games. The first one, I think, was uh, Dunnigan's Tactical Game Number 10. I have no idea what 1 through 9 looked like. Uh, but, yeah, that was you cut out your own counters, pasted them together, and, yeah, it was, okay, it was an attempt, but it was still had a lot of anomalies in it. Mm-hmm. 
then then we came out with Panzer Blitz, and that still didn't feel right, you know, beyond the problem with Panzer Bush. They used to quirk in the rules that if you, you couldn't do interruptive fire as a person ran from one cover to another. Was oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Panzer Bush, and I thought, give me a break, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then also if you uh, fired at someone, I think, okay, each unit represents five tanks. And I says, okay, and you could kill all five or you could disrupt them. Now, one of the most likely thing is you maybe kill if you open fire on the platoon with your appropriate, your platoons or whatever, you might knock one out, uh, damage another one, but you wouldn't disrupt them. I mean, it's not like these five tanks are now scrambling around bewildered. Right. Uh, you either, you know, it's sort of like you either did no damage disrupted the tanks or you killed them all there was nothing in between so was so that, did you so uh, that, that gave me the impression that okay something's yeah that's then you put in the uh problem with the, the panzer bush effect and things like this uh, so more and more it was a question of scale okay if you really want to show attrition on weapons and you don't want to have a, a uh uh, tally sheet or something to keep track. You might you should perhaps go down to a lower scale squad and put a single vehicle. And if you look at most of the stuff I was studying was not the mass armor battles, of course, but I was looking at a lot of the uh, fighting in Normandy and the fighting in uh, Stalingrad and things like this, where it was small groups of men with armor support. Occasionally the tanks would fight it off, but it would be made platoon against each other, you know, or section to two to four, uh, but it was mostly the stress of the, uh, was combined arms fighting. The actual big quasi-stand-up and tank duels, yeah, they happened out in the Ukraine and certainly the desert, but I found the, the little combined arm actions more interesting. So I lo- followed a lot of other things, and the, so that was the root of squad leader. It was two things. One, I was not getting, there was no game showing the type of level up that I was interested in at the time. And there was nothing that seemed to be an accurate simulation of, of the chronology of the tactical combat. So the scale of squad leader really came about from the need to to meet those criteria yeah, that you had. Yeah, the criteria. That yeah. So it didn't feel weird mm-hmm. that if I fired at a group of five tanks with an appropriate five tanks, there would be a you get something better than nothing disrupted or all five are dead. Yeah, and I and I. Since I played Squad Leader before, I played some other World War II um, miniatures games. I played Battleground miniature game, mm-hmm. Skirmish, and I know that one, they can run up on you, and there's, like, no defensive fire, and it drives me insane. Because, oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, know. like, it be that sort of like what you had in Panzer Blitz, where everything is a strict phase, where you can't do anything. Uh, you know, I mean, when it just says, okay, we have a... 1634s, they're going to run right up to the 88, and nothing's going to happen? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, or, well, and in, in this game system, you, you have a, where if you later opt fire out, to like, a certain area, and you can't turn to your left and fire as someone runs up at you down the street, you know, which, again, I'm like, it doesn't quite, doesn't work for me after playing your system, so. Well, yeah, and you could certainly make a case that, okay, if you suddenly... Uh, change your arc of attention or something like that, your, you know, quick reaction fire, yeah, your fire could be degraded. You could easily work that in the squad leader, treat it as moving fire, half factor. 
because for all practical purposes, you uh, you know you may, you, may, you can make a case that uh, your attention is moving. If you're at a cruiser machine gun and it's too far over the flank, you have to pick it up and slap it down on, on the flank. Yeah, which would be harder to do than with a rifle or pistols. And... Yeah, so, but the thing is, that's the nice thing about squad. A mechanism is there. If you could say, if you had to find an uh, arc of attention, arc of your primary fire to suddenly change target, you could say, well, you, you know, a lot of things are changing. Attention's changing. You, know, you don't know the range. It's a snapshot, so to speak. Depending on the weapon, you can easily treat it as uh, moving fire. Right. And if one unit is a squad, the whole squad may be actually doing subtle little movements, but there's nothing else going from uh, from the uh, the north side of the foxhole to the west side of the foxhole or something. But if you want, if you adjudicate that that would degrade their performance, they have a mechanism treated as moving fire. Uh, that's the same kind of thing in Shawnee Rev. You have, if somebody says, well, I, I don't think this is right. This is okay. Treat it as this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, so you have a mechanism to address situations that a person may not be feel comfortable with or they may feel that they're an anomaly. You don't have to gut the whole system and redo it. Yeah. Right. Were you working for Avalon Hill when these thoughts just were a, formulating in your head? No, I was just a, a freelance designer. Oh. Uh, I was actually, uh, I had already done my, had my own game company, the Conflict Game Company, or I was doing quirky little things. I, when I first published Wargamer, it was actually not a Wargamer, it was a game on organized clan called The Brotherhood, <laughs> uh, which was more of a family game, more like a 3M game or something. But it, it, it had an edge to it, but it also had the fact that you uh, you were the godfather who treated everything like a business. If it wasn't just go out and kill the other guys. It was oh, hitting how expensive and... You may make a bet, it may be better just to say you can't make a profit in a certain area of the town, but you can in another area. They just move out of it, move your operation. So that was that was sort of quirky. You know, that was actually the first one. It was pretty quaint. The second one almost was a tongue-in-cheek game, you know, and it still is popular with its got its little cult, and that was Verdun, which incidentally was republished, I think, last year or the year before. Huh. Uh, was published by Cool Front Games. Uh, you know, you sort of wonder, is this a real serious war game when the subtitle of the game Verdun was uh, the game of attrition? Right. And no matter what you do, it's unfortunate so much uh, you can have occasionally great successes, but pretty much at the end of the game, everybody's dead. <laughs> you know, you may have... Uh, taken the ground or not, but basically everybody has chewed through all the reserves and until they're willing to say, I was sort of fascinated by the the German actually calculated that during the Battle of Verdun uh, the casualties were so predictable German efficiency at its best, that they realized that every week they would have to totally draft all the young men in, in, a, in a single German town and then the next week they'd have to go to another town. But that basically, that was just a, it was the concept of uh, soldiers treated as a consumable. Mm. You know, they're just a form of ammunition. And, you know, Were you happy with the way that turned out? Yeah, it, it accurately stimulated it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was enough, there was enough air, uh, uh, 
wiggle room for tactics, what kind of artillery barrage and that kind of stuff, that, yeah, at least you could get something for the fact that you were burning, you know, battalions like popcorn. Yeah. Uh, The weird thing was you began to think the Germans had to roll for reinforcements because Falkenheim was very stingy. He actually did not want to get a victory, an outright victory, which he probably could have in the beginning, capture uh, Verdun. He wanted to always be threatening right on the edge of it so the French would continue to pour troops in to defend. The whole point is he deliberately wanted a battle of non-decision because he felt that Germany could withstand a prolonged attrition better than France could. Right. Oh, okay. It's sort of a, you know, God help us if our military leaders ever fall into that mentality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how many total games do you think you've designed in your lifetime? Maybe t- published, uh, I don't know, probably 20-ish. Mm-hmm. Every now and then I try to sit down and count, and I'll do it with some, some other war gamers, and they will always say, no, no, you forgot this and you forgot that. <laughs> there's a, lot, a whole lot number of another number uh, there's a number of other war games that are designed for the government uh, for the intelligence community that oh, really? don't count since they were all classified. Oh really? Can you talk yeah. about them now or do you have would you have to kill us? No, they're still classified. Oh wow. No, That's and I wouldn't have to I hate people when they say that because yeah. you know, I was I was part of the intelligence community and no, the only person who gets in trouble is not the recipient of the information. It's the person who committed the security violation like babbling. Right. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. So that uh, that's usually said by people who who are not who are intelligence community wannabes or something. That yeah. Or impressed. or people like Jeff who just like bad jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> do you, so. How did they contact you, or did you seek that out? Is it? Uh, well, it was sort of a mutual thing. Uh, I had been involved in... Uh, there were people, obviously, in the government who play war games, and uh, some that are very familiar with both everything that goes within the government, the gaming cycle there, and within the recreation... and what we might call our field, more common recreational entertainment field, the war games. And they were constantly crossing out. The person who's done a tremendous job on that is uh, Matt Caffrey. I think he's a general now for the Air Force. He was head of war gaming at Air University, but he's uh, very, very knowledgeable about a commercial war game field, and uh, he always was trying to bridge the two. But I had uh, basically at one point there was an issue. I had been doing some consulting work for one of the Beltway Bandits back when I lived in Virginia for the intelligence community, and uh, so I already had the clearances to a point and was sufficient, but then they they decided they needed a, a war game on, on a certain subject because there was a big debate between State Department and the Defense Department on, you know, should we do this, that, or what happens if we give these guys this weapon with the other, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was decided they wanted a war game, and one of the persons was familiar with my work. And he says, well, I know a guy who lives right here in Virginia already has the clearances. Why don't we uh, give him a con? see what we can do for with him as a contractor. Yeah, and were the, did they give you then uh, requirements for what they wanted, and and did those influence you in in coming up I mean, with uh, designs to make them realistic? Well, the thing is, first of all, yeah, they show me what they were looking for. The main thing is they are looking for often a specific answer. I called it, and I got very much involved in it, the analytical war game. It's a war game that says if 
if X does this, what is the what is the decision matrix after that? Uh, what are the probable outcomes? You know, the whole question of okay, well that and and if there is a reciprocal escalation on the other side, what was the probable outcomes of that? Yeah, uh, it's sort of like and you show them, you know, you you start working, you know, with it. So it's okay. You give them, you create a a war game world where they can plug in things to find out what is the effect of. Uh, should we this type of refreshment, you know, and also says, okay, we'd like to help decide, but we don't want to do X, Y, and Z. And eventually, I got very much involved in our intelligence community and gaming out various uh, weapon options to the Mujahideen. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, so the games that you designed for them and were by the way, most... the, uh, the movie Charlie Wilson's War is very well done. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie. <laughs> were the games you designed for them more strategic level? More tactical. Really? You know, because mm-hmm. people, by then I had already developed a reputation as the tactical guru from Squad Leader and some other things. Yeah. Uh, it was almost like, or, ta- or tactical slash operational. Yeah. There was plenty of folks doing the uh, strategic. And the Army, the military had a lot of its own war games, which unfortunately often were you, the results of those were either training which is one thing, or they were, or they were trying to design to prove or justify the purchase of X weapon system. Mm-hmm. Now that's fine, and that's all. And training is; those are both some perhaps uh, valid uses. But an analytical game, war game, which they're doing for the, for them, was actually says, okay, what's actually just going to happen without any real decisions coming in on it. You know, let other people make the decisions. I'll just you. I'll just game it out. You can run it as many times as you want. And a lot of times it was, they wanted a computer game. They wanted this, that. So it's amazing. You'd go in a library of existing government war games, and there's maybe a hundred different systems, and you could pick a system you want, call up whoever has it, and say, hey, uh, DIA or CIA would like to use this for some stuff. Can uh, you know, can get the software from you? And then, since it's government, already owned, government owned, yeah, fine, not a problem. But it was sort of fascinating just to go, when they give you the requirements and they say, if possible, we don't want this created from scratch, can you go kick around the government war game libraries and find something that would work, or that you could modify to make it work? Yeah. That does sound interesting. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it, you know, it was, uh, and heck, that kept gainfully employed for 20 years. Yeah, that's and what I was going to ask next, how long. Yeah, after that, during that time period, with the exception of Johnny Reb, I still was pretty much not that active. I, for obvious reasons, I didn't want to touch anything, even inkling of modern war. Right. Because after a while, you, your brain becomes a jumble, and you don't know what you've learned from unclassified sources and what you've learned from classified. Ah, uh, yeah. And you, so you just say, hey, you know. I'm not smart enough to sort it out anymore, so uh, <laughs> I, I know the information, but I can't sort out where I got it. But right. as long as I stayed with the Civil War, I was safe. Yes, yes. There's, yeah, very, there's, the, there's a few things that are still classified on the Civil War. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> all, 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 all involving the Lincoln assassination. Oh, okay, wow. <laughs> well, when, and, when did and, you, uh, if we could talk to you, you know, because our main focus is, uh, of our podcast is about squad leader, when... 
did you get the first ideas that you would design a game like? Well, after a while, because I, as I said, go back to earlier, I just said I was totally dissatisfied with what, uh, what was available in terms of a tactical war game. You know, it didn't show the lower echelons and also had silly effects like in uh, Panzer Bush and some of the, and uh, where you ran, a guy can run from cover to cover and not be fired in between. And even there was a lot of, mini in many respects, I started designing this as a miniature game first because uh, I wanted to play with micro armor. And, you know, but, but I figured it's, a, it's all sort of the same thing. And they, uh, the interesting thing about it was that I also ran into the same situation that you had made, pointed out. There was a number of war games that had this ridiculousness that you, a person could run right up to a person point blank and not receive any defensive fire. Yeah. So I sort of worked it out. Now we used to play monsters micro armor and I use little war game counters uh, for the uh, infantry that also was you know, sort of make it make it work I sort of you start with a standard of says okay what is the base unit that we're going to work with and then every, it, then everything is relative to that what is the you know the lowest common denominator and if you notice in squad leader the uh, I think the basic unit is a four four something like that uh, I'm sorry what do you mean by that? Uh, a combat factor of four, four morale seven. four, something like that. Four four seven, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like the base. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I started with that, particularly the four four seven, was I had tons of redundant counters left over. They were already labeled as four fours. <laughs> so I figured, well, I can play these these for playtesting. Just throw in a morale number of seven or whatever. Yeah. But it, it doesn't matter if this is because everything, all the numbers are relative. So pick, pick a number as a base. You know, for your common GI, neither elite, neither green, neither neither here nor a coward. You know, your right. general run of the mill. So the, we started playing with it like that, and it was coming together rather nicely. Now I talked to Eric Dot about a tactical mini, uh, game I had. So I played with miniatures. If I'm not into miniatures, and remember, Eric Dot was the late Eric Dot. Now was the president of Avalon. He says, "Wait, well, we just do board games." I says, "All right, not a problem. One inch is one hex." Yeah. And it translated perfectly because basically it wasn't based on another game. It was based on what I, my perception of reality. And for a long time, I'd go to war game conventions and run squad leader in miniature. Yeah, which I have done also, actually. It works very well. It does, yeah. Whether it's squad leader or ASL, it all works very well. Uh, I was at a convention out west, and a guy had actually built the section of Stalingrad that was on the... Uh, that I had from my little game board, and, you know, that actually he was doing a miniature, the infamous The Guards Counterattack. Yeah. Which is probably the most played war game scenario of all time. Yeah, probably is, I suppose. Yeah, the first scenario, the, the first scenario of Squad Leader. Right. And that worked out, and I, a lot of guys have taken it really far, and, you know, and in many ways, ASL is, you know, it's a squad leader with a hell of a lot of chrome mm -hmm. and some guys like a lot of chrome some don't fine yeah. it's proved that the system will function if whether you layer on as much as you want you know when you get down to loose leaf book number three or something you know you've layered on quite a bit but it still works yeah uh my personal preference i think in i think i think asl has gone too far with too much detail and too much, because it slows down the game too much. 
And when you look at the fact that they reissued a, uh, ASL starter kits... Yeah, I, I thought that was a ripoff. Which have pared it back down. Yeah, uh, it, it, it did, but I also think that I was sort of had a bit of a, you know, I think a lot of gamers told me they had a problem with uh, the, the constantly says, all your old counters are no good anymore. You've got to buy all these new ones. Yeah, I, so I sort of like whatever possible, uh, try to keep backward compatibility. Right. It, it's become a legend. It's become a lifestyle. The problem, I thought, and it, once again, it's the old question of detail versus playability. It's not necessarily realism. Well, realism can has many different flavors. One of my design objectives of Squad Leader was once you learn the game, the basic game, you could play it in real time, two minutes. People have done that. I'd like to try that sometime. You know, because it's supposed to present the actual quick, sh- quick snap decisions of yes. combat. right. You know, go back, go back through uh, Band of Brothers and time some of the combat sequences. Yeah. You will see everything. Prep fire, defensive fire, advancing fire, close combat. He comes up to the uh, building and throws in a hand grenade. And he says, hey, this is all happening in a two-minute cycle. Hmm. And you have to make the decision. And that was the whole point of it. You could do it in two minutes. You had to make quick decisions. You couldn't ponder and says, okay, let me look up a rule on this. Is this in Volume 3 or Volume 4? <laughs> uh, no. You, somebody says, go for it. You know, but when you began to layer on all the extra detail and chrome of ASL, where people are, you know, I've, I've watched people play ASL, spend most of the time going through the rules. Yeah. Uh, which are very complete, you know, and there's obviously when you're in multiple volumes, they've got to be complete. But when it takes, because of all that rule checking back and forth, when you have, uh, when you now have a two-minute turn, assuming you're trying to simulate two minutes of combat and take the half hour to resolve. Yeah. You've got you've gotten a lot of detail, but it, but I think you lost the realism. Realism is in the stress and snap decision of small unit combat. Were you aware of that when you were designing Squad Leader? Were you were you paring back things? Was detail creeping into your design? Yeah, it was the kind of thing you'd want to put more detail in at the same time you could still have the fast and furiousness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal opinion, and it's a balance, and it, you know, it's a matter of fact, a personal taste. Many things. Uh, I think the best balance was attained in Cross of Iron. Now, did you work on the next two modules? I worked on Cross of Iron and Crescendo of Doom, and it did some work on G.I. Anvil of Victory, but that was mostly Don Greenwood. Okay, right. Okay, I remember his name, yeah. Because I, I actually just got started in when they did the Advanced. Um, but yeah, well. I know exactly what you're saying about the speed thing, and it, it is a lot. Of, you can still capture that with the, uh, new, with the Advanced, but if you stick with Infantry... I think that really helps. Or if you're playing someone who really knows the rules really well, which is not me, and I've been playing a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I can rely on them. Okay, what happens here when you overrun me? Okay, you got this option, this option, this option. Uh, all right, I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll just do that. You know. Uh, so, but you're right. I, I really like a game that when you put a little more pressure on it and try and move those turns along. Yeah, and the thing is, and the thing is, the whole question of options. How much options do you really have? 
for you know some people there's a concept of should you be able to, the span of control and you know if you're the war gamer and squad leader and you're running the normal assortment of counters you probably have maybe a company you know maybe if you have a you know four squads in a platoon maybe three platoons they got 12 to 16 com uh, squads out there maybe more maybe less you've uh, got a couple of tanks in support or something like this now so you're the war giver so you're functioning as the company commander that's your cockpit uh, you suddenly uh, say get those tanks over there and you send the tanks over there to hope the armor does its thing to knock out this little uh, roadblock or something like this with the infantry support but you just give them the order for them to do how they actually necessarily do it and what options are really being chosen by the people in the tank, the infantry support, the defenders and stuff like this, you can't control. You just hope they do their job and they get lucky. Mm, right. So somebody's stopping, okay, the tank's going to overrun this and my options are his options. This. I sort of thought, well, the options are really, if you go back to the concept of you are the company commander, your option is you order it into battle, tell it where to go, and hope for the best. Well, that's why you could, I think a lot of that stuff is you could further away from the war gamer as a role-playing person, he's the company commander, the more you should probably abstract the various events rather than having all the specific little options played out. But a lot of gamers, some of you like to be able to say, no, I want to be able to do control the options of everything. Yeah, I want to actually be the infantry guy throwing the DC and the tank commander and... Yeah. You know, once again, as I say a lot, watch, you know, Saving Private Ryan or any of Band of Brothers, and the first thing, the combat is very well done, and yet the people are sort of in control, but they're really not. You yeah. watch, yeah, it's like things are going on, the guy who's supposedly commanding this is just watching, just hoping, trying to react and trying to make decisions, but his actual span of command, once you're engaged, is very limited. Yeah, you see an, you see an enemy squad coming around the corner of a building, you don't, you don't weigh, you know, should I fire at him or should I wait until he <laughs> you no, you're know, cut crosses loose. the street? Fire. You're just going to cut loose. Yeah, that's right. Or you're just going to say, oh, if you're there by yourself with your uh, Colt 45 and here comes a German squad with an MG38, you just, you just hope somebody else is around to take them out. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you, uh, as you were designing it, you know, what was your consideration regarding fog of war? That's always been a sort of a topic around wargaming that's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah and around squad leaders. Yeah, and around squad leaders specifically. Well, yeah, I think you always try to blend in as much as you possibly can. Fog of war to a point. You want to have as uh, much you possibly can without with still making it playable. You could get ridiculous to the point that no, there's no counters on the board and you're not even, everybody's plotting and charting and stuff like that. Well, come on, guys, it's still supposedly a game. But on the other hand, too much fog war itself is unrealistic. There's a lot of games that sometimes overstress over it. Yeah, this uh, is the little blocks. Yes, the yeah, block games, right? Yeah, you can't see what's behind them and stuff like that. You know, you can't see when you see a block representing troops. Yeah, Washington's Wars did that. Yeah, I remember. Uh, but, but then we but, did it when you were like far away. So. Yeah, but in reality, though, particularly, let's say, on the Eastern Front, where they, they got one of the big block games on the Eastern Front, everybody pretty much knew what their intelligence was very good. Everybody had pretty good orders of battle on the other guy. 
Yeah, and you had aerial reconnaissance, and you had radio communication. And everybody says, you know, even look at the the Russians' Operation Uranus, which uh, the big cutoff in Stalingrad. The Germans weren't surprised at the the Russian attack. Uh, they saw aerial reconnaissance. They saw the stuff building up on their flanks. It wasn't lack of information. It was the misjudgment of maybe that. Yeah, well, they can do that, but we probably will. Yeah. They'll attack and we'll, well, yeah. deal with it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was a miss, uh, miss, not so much a lack of information, but a lack of appreciation of the potential, the poor fighting quality of the Hungarians, Romanians, and Italians, and also an overestimation uh, of what they could do. Correct. Which is more, uh, rather than just a lack, lack of information, big, you know, total surprise. And some of the classic of also Kursk, it wasn't like both sides knew, everybody knew what each side had, what each side was doing, and everybody and the Russians knew when the Germans were going to attack. It was a battle of perfect information on both sides. Yeah. And so it was, the mistake was not a lack of intelligence, it was this mistake of judgment, you know, do we really want to do this? You know, so many of the, so that's an example sometimes, you know, what what is the fog of war I think fog of war is more relevant in some of the more more period games where people, whole armies could hide behind a hill and come out of the fog and things like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, and also it becomes a little more fog of war as you get down to the smaller unit. Very rarely, you know, it's not like the company commander in the middle of a fight for a, a, a little town somewhere in Normandy has access to at that instant, access to all the, the uh, aerial photography, you wouldn't. And even then, it would be 48 hours old. So, so what? Yeah. He doesn't necessarily know exactly what, he, you know, what amount of Germans are coming around at him at this moment. He's very much more if he's in a close action inside a town or, you know, woods or something, he's, he will very quickly find out. Yeah. Whether, uh, <laughs> you know, that. Uh, so in that sense, you have the, the fog of war. I think you could work a lot of that into S, uh, squad leader and ASL. Yeah, weren't the concealment counters there in the original squad leader, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what they were there for. And there's other, you could, they could mean a lot of things. They could say it could be real, it could be dummy. Uh, you also could do some amounts as, okay, I have a whole platoon hidden behind X Hill or something like this. The, the hidden counter could all, usually we estimate it's real or it's dummy. It also could be, it's real, but it represents like six squads. Easy enough done with just a little uh, roster sheet. Right. Uh, but you don't want the fog of war element to become a, uh, a tedious game in itself. You know, bottom line, we do this for fun, and after a while, if it becomes too much work, why bother? Yeah, with all recording all the secret things and, and that kind of stuff. Can now, some people, that's their game. You know, that's what they really like that. You yeah. Know. Uh, so did, did you design the game so it was fun for you, or were you thinking of your audience? Then did you make, you know, certain concessions on your own? Primarily, I tried to, you know, if the group I was playing with thought the way I did, so it was fun for me, it was fun for them. Yeah. Beyond that group, one didn't know. That's what happens. So many war games are dud because a designer thinks they're a lot of fun. His little group thinks they're a lot of fun. But when they go out and throw it out into the, the great piranha pit of war gamers at large, <laughs> uh, not. Yeah. 
1977, you published Squad Leader, and what was the reception like when it? It was kind of went out? it was outstanding. Oh, Every, you know, uh, I remember when Avalon Hill first when they first released was at a war game convention in some little place in Long Island, I think. Not Woodner College, but maybe I think it was somewhere else like that. And uh, they, they basically they sold out the first or second day, and they had to get more games schlepped up from Baltimore. That's and a good thing. And when it when it when it went to press, were you happy with the way it was? Were you satisfied when? Well, I, I was. I was. It, it was fine. You know, there's mm-hmm. always going to be some compromises and stuff. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, were you already starting to work on the next? <laughs> Yeah, improvements. to some degree. Well, yeah. I would be next, what I thought where it should go. Uh, Something they they want to do certain things for marketing reasons, like, you know, and I said, okay, fine, whatever. But I don't know what, what person came up with the idea that the the box should be purple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is the most unlikely color for a war game box. Well, second most unlikely. Yeah, and the first one would be pink. It's, yeah. <laughs> It's not very military, well, unless you're like an ancient, I don't know, Prussian or something. Or... Yeah, okay, yeah, Caesar's color, fine. Caesar was, it, the color of the Emperor of Rome was purple. Fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but... uh, Did... And it was, you know, that was just, but now that's probably one of the most sought-after antique war games of all time, in the first edition Purple Squad Leader. Yeah. yeah. Did you... um? Can I talk business a little bit? Do you, do you sell these games in bulk? I mean, you know what I mean? Is it like um, you're contracted or you, you design it and then you just sell it all at once? Or do you keep a royalty system? Or has that changed throughout history? Or Well, back then I was doing everything on a royalty basis. Per box sold? or um, It would be so many per game sold. And it could be a per, so much per game unit. Uh, or it could be a percent of the amount you get, maybe, if it's a fixed percentage, maybe you get a different amount, if it's a wholesale sale or a retail sale, or you just come up with a, a flat figure. There's a lot of different ways of doing it, you know, and a lot of different companies want different ways. Right. More and more, uh, not even more and more, a lot of times, depending on when I look at the level of ever somebody wants something, and maybe usually just a scenario for their existing game, I've done a, a scenario for the Flights of Fantasy's uh, Tide of Iron. It was their idea, and it was a good idea. They had to get all the famous war game designers to design one scenario for the Tide of Iron game. Yeah. So, so that was there was no real royalty in that since they all go all the scenarios go into one uh, scenario book. So that was a, that was a flat fee. Okay. And now you don't get it. Well, you don't get anything obviously from the advanced system. No, I Currently. don't. And of course, that was no- a, that was a mistake on my part not to really go into, not to press fully for that with you know with a full legal power that could be available to me, but I didn't, uh, so I didn't get anything on ASL. Okay, the um, and of course, no one makes a living at this, or have you managed to kind of do that? Or? No, no one has made it. They made a living by using it as a uh, lever into something else. Certainly, I made a very good living with the intelligence community for 20 years. Right. Which, my introduction to that, that was primarily is for doing uh, some war games, and then one thing led to another, and then pretty much you're just sort of sucked into the whole thing, and, you know. But but it then works. But that's a very good government pays very well. 
Yeah. So, but now designing war games and stuff, uh, yeah, I can puddle with it because it makes it makes pocket money, and I never will because my you know I've got a pretty good government pension, so I don't have to resi- rely on it for a living. You consider uh, yourself- most people who make a living out of war gaming are not doing it in the commercial sector. They eventually uh, um, become to the attention of the. Uh, profet- uh, for the governmental sector, and then then you can make make some very good good money, provided you have the right contact. The timing, the timing is everything. Uh, you just come out, Anthony Wood, who says, "I'd like to sell a war game to the, the DIA or something like that." Well, it doesn't quite work that way. They already got their contractors, so mm-hmm. and you just sort of hook up with some bidding for something. That, that's a whole other. That's a whole other game in itself. So after a squad leader. You know the first edition, then they came. That went through four editions, I believe. Is that right? That's possible. Yeah. And were That's you possible. involved in in those second, third, and fourth edition modifications? Bod leader, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I was involved in cash. I cashed my loyalty checks, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best part. You know, that is, but after a while, they're just sort of you know cleaning up the rules and plugging and chugging, and at least getting away from the purple box. <laughs> yeah, right. Which they did on second edition, I think. Oh, oh yeah, they most yeah. certainly did. And by doing it, they created the uh, all-time, you know, the number one collector's first edition. I, mean, yeah. I know guys. Who, I know guys who just constantly go through the Comsum world list and everything, and they just constantly hunting for the, uh, hoping that someone, some, uh, you know, a purple squad leader, you know, unpunched will surface. Lots of luck, but if you do, it's going to be serious money. Yeah. You don't have a stack of those stashed in your basement. No, you? everybody has asked me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the world wants to know. Yeah, when, that would be no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> and it also said that I you, probably should have. Yeah, if well, only yeah, looking, known. looking back, yeah. You know, yeah. I should have treated like a wine, take a, a whole case of the Purple Squad leaders and, you know, <laughs> stash it away for 20 years. Well, who would have thought? I mean, it, it seems... To us, yeah, it was a phenomenon. A it was unpredicted, and that yes. was the no one expected it to be what it was. The normal run of a game would be, you know, it'd be popular for a couple of years and then sort of die out, and then another game would be in vogue. Uh, yeah. There was the old saying that eighty percent of all war game sales happened in the first two years. That was the rule of thumb in the, com- in the commercial war gaming at the time, because mm-hmm. everybody went on to the newest and greatest, whatever it was. Two uh, of to have planned for squad leader being for what it was was would have been impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, the two things you never can really predict is total disaster and total success. Yeah. The odds are too much against either one. Yeah. 99% of the time you get something in the middle. Uh, and squad leader was such a successful design and the basic mechanisms of how it works, whether it's Squad Leader, ASL, Johnny Rebel, any one of its numerous imi- imitations. Yeah, it, it, it had an elegant simplicity about it that gave it legs that had not been seen probably before or since. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to us that there's you know something of a renaissance, I guess, in this kind of board gaming, and we suspect it's because people played these when they were younger, high school, college. Yeah, and they're sort of getting back into it. And they're getting back into it. The kids are gone to college themselves, and people have time. And, and, and he goes, starts poking around in his basement or something, and says, oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Mm-hmm. 
they dusted off. Yeah, that was cool, man. I had a lot of good times with that. Yeah, and of course the internet makes it so easy then to find people to play. Yeah, it's a it's, wonderful thing. I mean, I found yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, before the internet, you just sort of, fun. You know, it was by pure chance. Yeah, our major friends play. That's your friends, I, yeah, you, you converted a few friends. You pl- played the role of the apostle. Right. And uh, or you eventually maybe you started a little war gaming club at your high school or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or college or whatever. Now you had also owned a game store, is that right? Yeah, I owned a. It was a hobby shop. Uh, it was in Lafayette, Indiana. It was you know a general full line hobby shop, mostly model railroad military hobbies, of which war gaming was one part of it. Okay. But I but it wasn't primarily a game store. Games, I did okay with the games, but the bread and butter was in the more established hobbies, such as model railroading and RC models and things like that. The main reason was model railroading was an established adult hobby, and now adults had a lot more money than the high school kids who were primarily the the core of your wargaming group at the time. Right, right. yeah. Now, any smart businessman focuses business on the hobbies of the rich. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, the adult, uh, model railroading had, they had a lot of money. They could drop a couple hundred bucks on a single engine and stuff like that. Yeah, I want to cater to that. I want to sell stuff to these guys. But the war game, it was fun. I had I enjoyed it and stuff. But, you know, as I, but it was not, uh, it was primarily the, hobby of the people of in high school and college who didn't have that much disposable income. A few did, but not that many. Yeah, and I think... The- and it was, and I, that's why I says, okay, that's when I was running the hobby shop, and then I even, that's when it spun off my game company, the Conflict Game Company. And how long did that last? Oh, it lasted for about a couple, two, three years, and I sold the company to a game designer's workshop. Oh, okay, right, right. Yeah, and they, they ran with it for a while, and it's sort of a sobering thought that very, very few war game companies survive, maybe five to ten, you know, yeah. and some not even that long. You know, do you have any insight into the failure of Avalon Hill, or were you not it, that? Eric Dott's view, it never was a failure. His whole concept was, build, you know, Eric Dott was a businessman. Is he, was he the owner of Avalon Hill? Yeah, he owned Avalon Hill. Uh, basically, Eric Dott owned a printing company. Oh. I forget, Charles Roberts sort of started Avalon Hill, and the company went bankrupt mainly because they owed Eric Dott's printing company so much money. So Eric Dott just walked like the books, took over Avalon Hill, smart enough to see, hey, this little company has some legs, let it run for a while. But the whole point was he would, keep, he would keep it going to the point he would be able to cash in and sell it off to somebody else. And he sold it off uh, eventually to Hasbro. Right. Mm-hmm. So you mean the printer guy at Monarch? Is that Monarch Printing or something? Monarch Press, you know. That was owned by Eric Dott. So and that's from the angle to leverage to take over Avalon Hill and then run with that. Eric Dott was a supreme opportunist and businessman. The company was a, his strategy, you know, whether it's, he sold it off for a good, a good chunk of change. So from his viewpoint, it wasn't a failure at all. It did yeah. exactly what we intended it to do. It was a commodity that he picked up cheap because they were broke and they owed him money, and eventually, given and he made money all of it, made a good cash flow all through the years. Then he sold it off for some serious bucks to Hasbro. And what? How did they not manage their funds well enough? Well, printing too many games at once, or do you? Do you... That I mean, well, I think it was 
Well, it was sort of hard to say they're only bringing out one new product a year. And so your whole life or life or death is based on what's going to happen to that one new product, you know. Yeah. You better have a winner every year. Yeah, so it's And hard. had Squad Leader not come along, they probably would have died a lot earlier. Because they had a number of really bad games. You know, one that was sort of mediocre was uh, Luzaki's uh, Luftwaffe. And, yeah, okay, it, it sort of played out you know, in a very simplistic way, a big error campaign over Germany. But eventually Germany's pounded the oblivion, all the targets are bombed. Uh, it didn't really, ha you know, it was okay, but it didn't have the kind of excitement. Then there was the all-time, what I think the biggest dud of a war game, was designed by Tom Shaw, Kriegspiel. Kriegspiel? Kriegspiel. Hmm. That was yeah, their game for one year, and they, you know, maybe, you know, it was, it was very novel, new, different, but it was totally out of touch with what the war gamers wanted, yeah. they were looking for. So you're bringing out one game a year, and if you bring out a total, you know, dog, whether it's a brilliant design or not, if the gamers don't like it, you're dead in the water. And SPI, on the other hand, was coming yeah, out. Yeah, they just crank them out like popcorn. Three a month or something like that yeah. for a while. And, and the whole point was, yeah, some were good, some were bad. Yeah. Some were hideous, some were had little strict experience, but who cares? You got If you didn't like it, you got another one, another couple coming next month. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. It was but that the didn't, constant, that... you know, you throw, you do enough of them, you're going to get some, you're going to have a, a part, an even mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. But it's you know, but they were cheap enough and popcorn enough that you, if you happen to get one of the ugly ones, so what? Maybe the next one's going to be great. Is, uh, have you seen the? Um, we recently received an email with a link to a, uh, some video on YouTube of an SPI infomercial, what they call an infomercial from 1977 or so, or 1980. It's about a five-minute-long commercial for SPI games. Have you seen that? No. I'll email it to you. It's pretty. It's it's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> it'll it'll take you back. Yeah, it'll take you back. It'll take you back. Yeah, I'm sure it would. So, do you get? Do you play? What are you playing these days? Are you still playing? You have a group oh, of guys. Oh, occasionally I'll be uh, get together with uh, when I go to the conventions. I'll get talked to do a Johnny Reb game or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I went to Comsim World, and you know, I'll play. You know, occasionally play something. But usually people just want to sit there and talk about games, or I'll, you know, talk about some of my uh, some of my ongoing design work and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I really don't play that much anymore. Cause it, it's simply I'm more interested in who I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. My God, there's some people out there that take this stuff way too seriously. <laughs> And you made the game, and they, <laughs> and you're saying that. So. Yeah, it's so No, true. but there is a, I went to a, a fun little convention. Uh, I'd recommend it to you. It happens every two years. It's down in Indianapolis. It's called Johnny Con. Oh. It was based, uh, the guy who runs it was one of the original playtesters of Squire Reader, one of the original playtesters of Johnny Reb, and he, he became a, a big Johnny Reb fan, so he founded Johnny Con. It was basically based on Johnny Reb and all derivatives thereof, and since Squad Reader was the prequel, that really, uh, you know, it's, a, it's always played there in a ver with endless variations. It's in Indianapolis every, it's going to be in this, this year in June. And if you're in Chicago, I can promise you it'll be a, great, a good time. There's only about 50 guys there. But you're going to be with all the people who were there at the, who were there at the creation. Mm. 
might be a worthwhile uh, road if trip. If you're down to if you uh, if you're in Chicago, it's yeah. a two-hour drive. Yeah. Well, we might do that. It'd be fun. You know, to I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there, and a lot of the other guys. There's always some beautiful squad leader miniature games. Uh, one fellow did a beautiful version. I think of I forget the actual scenario, but everybody knows a Hill Six Thirty One or something like that. Yeah. Oh, right. Hill yes. One. You know, which. Uh, and I had sort of forgotten forgotten about this. I had mean, forgotten sort of how to play squad leader even. Uh, but it, how this guy had very, done a brilliant with miniatures. He did all the terrain in miniature, you know. So I, it was. So we're, I was playing this scenario as the German. It's very frustrating for the German. You guess when you're constantly seeing that you're getting ahead, you know, more Russians come in or something yep, like here that. Here comes some more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it says, finally I got these bastards under control. Oh man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which was really what the Germans felt like in the post-Kursk era. Yeah, yes, no doubt. And uh, at one point, I was just, you know, I was getting so frustrated, and in uh, some ways, I had a real uh, good long, uh, I had a significant string of bad luck, and I finally says, oh, "This is really unbalanced. What more on design this scenario?" <laughs> and then, then the point, then there was point of right. Well, you did. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was so engrossing and so frustrating that I had even forgot I was the creator of this uh, this monster. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but everybody had a great laugh about that. Yeah. And, yeah, well, uh, maybe we will get to Johnny Com this year. That's a... That sounds very uh, interesting. Have a web, yeah, it is. And, yeah, you'll get the... The guy will probably once again bring Hill 681. Mm-hmm. It, you, it's such a, it is such a cleverly balanced there. The German keeps thinking, well, I almost won this time. Maybe the next time. If I do just that little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, well, that was makes for a good war game. It'd be worth the drive. It'd be worth the drive just to meet you because, you know, like it or not, you're, you're a legend. Well, well, thank you very much. How's that uh, feel? I mean, it, it's really been uh, a real honor to talk to you. Well, well, thank you very Definitely, much. Definitely, yes. But, I mean, uh, you're going to, the people who will be there were the ones who were some of the first play testers of Johnny, of Johnny Reb, and the first play testers of Squad Leader. The guys who played it in miniature crawling around on my basement floor. Yeah. You know, this is the real grognards. Yeah. And, and the yes. thing is, you begin to see all the games, Johnny Reb is basically a derivative of Squad Leader. And you'll see all the different variations. The thing is, you can put it on any game you want, provided it's a based in some way loosely cosmically with uh, from Johnny Rebsash Squad Leader. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a kick. It is. It absolutely yeah. is a, you know, because it's so grossly informal. It is. It is a kick. Yeah. Now that was Hill Six Two One. You think that scenario we were just talking about? I forget the number, but everybody sort of knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think it was 621. It's uh, listed on the Roar record where they record who wins, and it actually comes up 75 victories for the German and 74 for the Russian. That's pretty well balanced, according yeah. to this. You can't, yeah, you don't get more balanced than that. Yeah. All right, well, thank you anyway. Any Anything else you'd like to say? Well, no, I think we've pretty much covered it, you know, from the uh, SL and the ASL viewpoint. Well, we appreciate you very much taking the time to talk with well, us. I know it's, uh, it's been my pleasure. It's always fun to uh, reminisce about a lot of the quirks of how these things really come into being. Yeah. 
Well, and we had interviewed the new full-time employee at MMP um, last week, and we had you this week, and I told Jeff it's all downhill from here. We've already, yeah, we've... <laughs> We should, maybe well, we should stop recording, uh, Dave, and just fold up the tents. Yep. Yeah, just yeah. You know, after this, there's no one more important <laughs> well, than these two guys. You've already been to the, been to the, you've already climbed the two mountains you wanted to do. That's yep. right. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks thanks again very much, okay, John. Okay, you we, guys have a good evening. All right, yeah. thanks, John. All right, take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. There we go. John Hill. Very entertaining, fascinating, and not dull in the least. No. <laughs> Not at all dull. Very amazing. That was really something. I, I actually I would like to go to Indianapolis. I'm going to look up Johnny Khan and just see. Maybe we'll go. Yes, since you're not going I'm to Gen Con this year. Gen Con, and that would be a shorter trip. Maybe yeah, it would be right? a shorter like trip. A day, we could do one days, night, one yeah. night over. Mm-hmm. So we'll check that out and we'll report back about that. But that was pretty cool. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll be back to our usual hijinks. Probably. Probably. So, we like to say, roll low. Ah. And and rally rally well. But not when you're playing us. Never when you're playing us. Never. Never. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Oh, yeah. I've always wanted to work for the CIA. My hat's in my suitcase. <laughs>